Oh man, I forgot about these lights. All right. They're very bright. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Awesome. Awesome. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I hope you grabbed a cup of coffee. Uh, It is amazing and free. Uh, We're going to find ourselves in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Uh, If you'd like to open your Bible or load your Bible, go ahead and do so. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some on some rows or in the back at the Connect desk. There are Bibles for you. That's our gift to you. Again, saying thank you for hanging out with us this morning. Um, In addition to that, if you are new or you've joined us in the past couple of weeks, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to answer questions on your chairs. Additionally, are these cards and it says connect. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket, and someone will get uh, back with you very, very quickly. With all that being said, uh, as we're finding ourselves in Titus chapter 3, I want to give you a bit of a review of uh, where we've been where we're going to be headed today, and then ultimately what's coming up next after Titus. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started this sermon series uh, titled uh, Confidence, Conviction, and Conduct uh, in in the book of Titus. Uh, And the reason we titled it that, the reason we gave it Confidence, Conviction, and, and, and Conduct is because through Titus, we believe that Two things are incredibly important. Two teachings are incredibly important from the Apostle Paul. And that is sound doctrine and our conduct, or sound doctrine and good works. Those are two things that are very distinct in nature, but at the same time work together. And we'll look at how that uh, ultimately plays itself out in our time today. Uh, In terms of a quick review, again, if you're joining us, so we started a couple of weeks ago. uh, The book of Titus has been an immense study because it shows two, uh, kind of these two sides of the Apostle Paul. On one side, you have the Apostle Paul who is writing this personal exhortation uh, to Titus, a young pastor on the island of Crete. Uh, it shows this personal encouragement to him. Uh, Paul refers to him as a spiritual son. And so it is very personal. It's very engaging. It's very encouraging. Titus has a heavy task before him. He is planting churches on the island of Crete. And at the same time, he is also establishing church leadership and church governance and already established churches. So he has a very big and daunting task ahead of him. In addition to that, Paul is also very urgent in his way uh, on how he writes to Titus. He's very urgent in the language that he uses for Titus. There really isn't an introduction in this letter. Paul just jumps right into it and starts telling Titus what he needs to do uh, and what ultimately he needs to prepare himself for. And where we find ourselves uh, is that we've walked through a series of big themes in Titus, some big doctrinal or theological themes, but at the same time, we've walked through some heavy practical application. We've done everything from God's plan of salvation for his people to the qualifications of a pastor and godly leaders uh, to what it looks like to identify, what it looks like to call out, and the purpose of calling out false teachers. We also looked at Man, the unique call for the Christian in light of discipleship as that is a part of our lifestyle, not 
an option, but a part of our lifestyle. So we looked at the call of discipleship for both men and women in the church. Last week, we pushed really heavy on the doctrine of grace, this unmerited favor from God toward sinners. And so we're entering chapter three today. We are about to land the plane in Titus. We'll be here for another two to three weeks. Once we're done in Titus, we're going to jump back into Philippians. If you were with us in the spring, we started the book of Philippians in the month of May. Once we're done with Titus, we're jumping back into Philippians to finish that off. And so that's kind of where we've been, where we're headed to today, and then ultimately what's coming up next. So with that being said, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to pray for our time and then transition into a short story. Uh, the, the, the text itself is, it's not that it's long, but it is very dense. And I want to walk through it slowly with you as we unpack what Paul has to say for Titus. And so before we get there, let's go ahead and jump in prayer. And then, uh, and then we'll jump into the remainder of our time. God, you are so good. You are so good and gracious, and God, we thank you for this time uh, as we get to worship you, not only in song and in praise, but through your preached word. God, I pray that you would bestow grace and courage uh, and conviction by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning uh, for the purpose of working in our hearts, for the purpose of of, uh, man, fixing our eyes upon your son Jesus, and more significantly, so that you would receive all of the glory. God, I pray that as you reveal yourself through your word, that we would be changed by your spirit. And so we thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters joining me here today, and visitors as well. Uh, We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So if you read John 3, this would probably be a better way of, of, of telling, like if you read John 3, that will be a better way of which, uh, the way I'm going to explain it. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase John 3 in a nutshell. In John 3, at, at, at one point in Jesus' ministry, this guy named Nicodemus, Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. They have a private one-on-one meeting. And Nicodemus goes to Jesus, and he essentially asks him a couple of questions, one of which is a really core question. He essentially asks Nicodemus, who are you? You've been doing all of these works of someone that is walking with God. Who are you? Now, it's an incredible question. It's an incredible question because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he is part of the Sanhedrin. Now, what that means is that this dude is highly educated. He is in a position of authority. His upbringing most likely consisted of him memorizing several books of the Bible, namely the first five. This guy knows his stuff on paper. And so he goes to Jesus and he begins to ask him, who are you? I see you doing all of these things I don't want anybody to know about this meeting because I'm curious about you. Who are you? And Jesus, in fact, I'll turn to John 3. Jesus has a really interesting uh, and profound response for, for, uh, for Nicodemus. Not quite sure if he liked it or not, but he has a really good response for him. This is in John chapter 3. You can just listen. This is beginning in, in I think this is verse 5. Jesus answered him. 
or excuse me, Jesus tells him in verse 3, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes to Jesus and he tells him, who are you? And then Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That throws him off a little bit. It throws him off a little bit. And you can tell by Nicodemus' response, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It was a very interesting conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus. And I think what I want to boil it down to so that we dive back into Titus, ultimately what I want to boil it down to is Nicodemus's confusion. I think Nicodemus is confused at Jesus's response because I think he's banking in terms of the kingdom of God. I think Nicodemus is banking on, well, I'm a Pharisee. I, uh, I know books of the Bible. I know some stuff. And I'm kind of a good person. And you're really confusing me by saying that I need to be born again. Like you're kind of tripping me out. And that's a paraphrase. Why it, why it boils down to or how it impacts you and I is that I think many times we can be like Nicodemus. Many Christians, many people can be like Nicodemus and they will essentially hunker their life down to this religion of morality, of doing good, of being good, of being not like that other person or not as bad as this person. That ultimately we can narrow our life down to a life of morality. And I think this is where Jesus challenges you and I. He challenges you and I by saying, unless you are born again, unless you are regenerated, will you see the kingdom of God? Unless you are regenerated, will the work you do matter because of who you are? And I think that's incredibly profound, but it tells us the solution. The solution is regeneration, not more good stuff, but regeneration. And the work of regeneration is that a new life is given to us, and that new life exposes good works. We come back to what I said earlier. This is where sound doctrine and good work are yet distinct, but at the same time, very, very important. And so we enter into Titus. We enter into Titus because that's ultimately the core of our time today. Regeneration. But before we can talk about regeneration, we're going to look at Paul's exhortation to the church. And we're going to park in verses 1 through 2. This is what Paul says in Titus. Chapter 3, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
See, up until now, Paul has been writing to Titus and specifically addressing the church and the needs that needed to take place within the church. Now he's addressing their church in light of their conduct outside the walls of the church. He is addressing the church in light of who and how and what they are to do when they're among people who don't know Jesus. And so he tells them to remember who you are and remember to be submissive to those who are in appointed positions of leadership or authority. Remember to be obedient. Obedience is lawful because it demonstrates something bigger. And he says, speak gently with wisdom. Respond and reflect humility. That's, that's meekness. Respond and reflect humility to all people. Meekness in and of itself is, is a fruit of the Spirit. And so he says to be ready and to do these things. Skipping over the part where he says ready for every good work, we'll come back to that. He says to avoid quarreling, to don't be argumentative. Don't be argumentative. <clears throat> and to show perfect courtesy for all people. When he writes to be ready for every good work, here's what we need to understand right from the get-go. We need to understand that good works are a response to the work of God in us. He doesn't say when you're ready. He says be ready. Good works are a response to the work of God in the believer because our conduct bears witness to the gospel. And so he says to be ready for good work. Be ready for good work because the gospel in practice demonstrates something bigger. That if grace is ultimately our motivation, if grace is ultimately our motivation, then our goal is not to demonstrate superiority. Our goal is not to demonstrate achievement. Our goal as Christians is to demonstrate redemption. That is the goal. The goal is to demonstrate redemption. Seeing other people come to know Jesus. When it comes to the life of the Christian, the Christian isn't better. The Christian is repentant. The Christian is not better. The Christian is repentant. Good works are a response to the work of God in us. And they aim to please Him. They aim to bring Him glory. They aim so that others might come to know Him. And he goes on in verse 3. He goes on in verse 3 to say, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he says, be ready for good work. Because the Christian is the one who knows where they've come from. Remember who you once were, not so that you would wallow in it, not so that you would stay in it, but so that you would gain perspective. So that you as the Christian would gain perspective. 
Essentially, he's saying that salvation isn't simply understanding that you've been saved. It's recognizing what you have been saved from. Eternal separation from God. And in verse 3, which is up on the screen, in verse 3, what he's telling us to do is, man, remember, apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus, sin does three things. It deceives, it enslaves, and it separates. Without a saving knowledge of Jesus, sin deceives. It says here that we were once foolish, that we were disobedient. That means that we lacked under spiritual understanding, that we were misled, that we were rebellious toward God because we were enemies of God. He says that sin enslaves, he even words it that way, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy that before God saved us or the person who doesn't know God, that they are enslaved to their sin passing the days in malice, desiring to bring good on no one, that they are ruled by envy, that they are ultimately not satisfied. And when you look at deception and when you look at enslavement, those are two internal things. That is what's happening to the person who does not know God internally, and it manifests itself in hatred. Hate is a product of deception and enslavement. He goes on to finish hated by others and hating one another. That that is who we were. That is who we were apart from Christ. Christian, at one point, this is who we were. And therefore, the Christian is not better, but repentant. And it took someone snatching you out of this formal life, giving you a new one. And so we transition into verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of like the big crescendo because he says, be ready to do good work. And if the question is, why should I be ready? Because of where you come from, because of what God has done. That's where we're walking into. Because of what God has done. This is verse 4 through 7. This is what Paul writes. Man, and I think as we read this, I seriously think Paul is like really excited. Like it's kind of one of those, like his thoughts can't keep up. And so he's thinking theologically here, not necessarily chronologically in terms of the work of salvation. But nevertheless, this is what Paul says. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This dude just loves run on sentences, right? (laughs) And so in verses 4 through 7, he is ultimately talking about the mercy of God. So he went from be ready to do good work because you understand where you've come from. So you have perspective because of the work God has done in you, because of what God has done for you, because of what God has snatched you out of. And so it begins with a redemptive work that through the work of Jesus, God comes and saves sinners. That is the redemptive work of Jesus, that he comes and saves sinners. 
as Paul continues, he removes human effort from the equation of salvation and says that salvation is according to God's mercy. He removes human effort so that you and I cannot boast in how awesome we are because we're not. It took someone coming into human history to snatch us out of where we were. It took someone else to come down, show us what it looked like, died the death that you and I deserve, and snatched us out of the hell we were in. Now, what you're going to see in this beautiful work of salvation is that as we walk through verses 4 through 7, you will have done nothing, only contribute your sin. That's what we'll see in verses 4 through 7. So Paul removes human effort from the equation of salvation and says that salvation is according to his mercy. Let's read that one more time, slower. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that is Jesus, he saved us. Not because of works done in us by righteousness. Not because of what you've done. Not because of what, you know, how cool you think you are or what you've achieved but according to His own mercy. When we talk about God saving sinners, when we talk about salvation, the reason it can be a hot-button issue is because we don't like that someone else did something and pulled us out of it, that we don't like the fact that it's fair. Here's the thing. Salvation is not fair. It is grace. Salvation is not fair for anyone. It is called grace. And so God demonstrates his mercy through his love and kindness toward people. God demonstrates his mercy through his love for those who don't deserve it. That's the definition of mercy. That we don't get what we deserve. God demonstrates his mercy through his love by dying for the ungodly. That is how he demonstrates his mercy. He demonstrates his mercy by dying for the ungodly. And then he goes on to say that we are washed, that we are regenerated, and then we are renewed. That is, that he gives us the provision of the Holy Spirit. That when he talks about washing, what he's saying is that if we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. That is to wash us of our unrighteousness. He is faithful to do that. And it doesn't just stop with him cleansing us of our sin just to never talk about it again. He then regenerates us. That if we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive and cleanse, and then he regenerates us, which is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. He says that we are regenerated, that the gift of God is not only the grace of Jesus, but a spiritual heart transplant. That is, God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart. See, the Bible teaches that apart from Jesus, we are physically alive, but spiritually dead. And that it is through the work of Jesus that he makes us alive. That's Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, but God is the one who made us alive in Christ. 
And the heart is incredibly important because it is the source of our very being. In other words, who we are is the result of the condition of our hearts. You've heard those taglines, man, follow your heart, listen to your heart. That's stupid. Don't listen to those, okay? Don't listen to those because what Scripture says about the heart is that in the heart is where we're going to carry our idols, our identity, our treasure, our character. We will see who we are as a result of the condition of our hearts. And apart from Jesus, our hearts are separated from God, our hearts are dead, and it took a Savior to come into human history to then make us alive. That is why the heart is incredibly important. That is what it means to be regenerated, that you have been given a new heart as a result of the work of Christ on the cross. And he doesn't stop there. Remember, run on sentences. (laughs) We are regenerated. That means we're given a new heart. And then he says that we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, that God pardons our sin. He gives us a new heart and he places his spirit within us. He places his spirit within us. Man, the Holy Spirit, we've been talking about this. We want to do a sermon series on the Holy Spirit because God, the Holy Spirit, does a ton of stuff. Man, God the Holy Spirit transforms us. He convicts us of our sin. He counsels us. He guides us. He, uh, man, changes our hearts to become more like Jesus. So it doesn't just stop with pardoning. It doesn't just stop with a brand new heart. It also keeps going because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit does not speak or work apart from Scripture. Listen to Ezekiel 36. And I want you to know, in this section of Ezekiel, actually going back, in John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he tells him about being washed and regenerated, Jesus is reaching back and pulling from Ezekiel 36. Right? This is what Ezekiel 36 says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your cleannesses. Sorry. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It sounds like God is incredibly busy at work in his people. By the way, we still haven't done anything. Just contributed our sin. Okay? So we see a redemptive work through Christ. We see his provision of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, that we are declared righteous. This is towards the end, I think, of verse seven. I'll read that briefly. Yeah, verse seven. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so he says... Again, he's saying a lot of things. He says that we are justified by God's grace and are given an inheritance. Those are three things. The word justified, what he's saying in here is that it means through the work of Christ on the cross, the sinner is declared right before God on the condition of faith alone, not merit. When we're talking about the doctrine of justification, justification is a legal term. 
It means to be right in right standing or in legal standing before someone like the judge. And so the doctrine of justification says that God accepts us on the condition of faith alone, not our works. The semicolon part to that is the work that we are declared righteous on is the work of Christ, not ours. Not ours. So he says this means that we, through the work of Christ, the sinner is declared right before God on the condition of faith alone. And he says that that is also a gift of his grace. He says justified by his grace. What's grace? That is God's unmerited favor toward sinners. God's unmerited favor toward sinners. And in that grace, he justifies sinners. He makes them right before God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the sinner is declared righteous. Listen to Paul elsewhere. This is Romans 3. He goes on to say, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is not, for there's now distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are declared righteous. The sinner, the believer, is declared righteous on behalf of the work of Jesus. That's how justification works. And then Paul continues that we are given an inheritance What's that inheritance? We've talked about this before. You could even read through 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 1, where he details what kind of an inheritance we already received. He says an inheritance, and that is eternal sonship in the presence of God. A gift given that we cannot earn and one that no one can take away from us. He has just walked through the work of salvation and all we've done is contribute our sin. All we've done is contribute our sin. Yet God is the one who initiated salvation. God is the one who saved us. God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who gives us really good things, really good gifts, namely this inheritance. That is grace in a big verses four through seven nutshell. That is grace. Philip Towner says, God himself has brought his people from wrath to blessing, from immorality to godliness by the provision of his spirit. So here's the encouragement for the Christian. This is what God has done for you. Verses four through seven. That is what God has done for you. This is a work that God continues to do in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. And if you don't know Jesus, then you do not have eternal life, that you are still considered spiritually dead. But if you confess your sin, Christ is faithful to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. Remember, the Christian is not better. The Christian is just repentant. That's it. That's it. Moving on to verse 8. This is, my wife told me not to give this analogy, but she's not here. 
And so, so then, this is a horrible analogy, but it works in my head, right? Like, this section is like a burger, okay? In the sense that, like, good work is a, are the buns, right? And the gospel, like, what, what Jesus does, what God does, is the meat, right? Like, that's probably the most important thing. It is, right? Anyway, I say that because Paul starts with good work, to be ready for good work, as a result, here's the meat, as a result of what God has done, so devote yourself to good work. See, get it? Burger. Anyway, right? <laughs> Let's go to the, the verse 8. She won't hear this. I don't think she will. Uh, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here's what he's saying. Now he's talking about our motivation. So he's saying, be ready for good work because the Christian should have all the perspective. And if you don't, let me remind you of what God has done. And now that I've reminded you of what God has done, let me tell you to devote yourself to good work. Let me tell you your motivation for good work. And so the first thing is that we affirm good works. In other words, we need to know our why. We don't just do good works. There is a why behind that. The motivation is grace. The motivation is what God has done in the believer. The motivation is the gospel of Jesus. And so works are motivated not by self-righteousness, but redemption. They're motivated not by selfish gain, but humility. They're motivated not by entitlement, but by the glory of God. That the Christians, or excuse me, that Christians are to be the most humble and active evangelists, not passive disciples. So we affirm good works. And number two, we devote ourselves to good works. That we devote ourselves to good works in order to glorify God and to make disciples of Jesus God regenerating and renews us by the power and provision of the Holy Spirit. The result is a life captive to the Holy Spirit. Works are a natural response to the work of God in the believer because they bear witness to the gospel. Many of you find yourselves uh, in, in, in your careers, in, in your places of work, where maybe it's education, it's business, you, you do an array of things. And oftentimes you can be surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. And sometimes that can be uh, discouraging. That could be discouraging because maybe you feel alone. And I get it. I totally get it. I worked for the city of McAllen for 10 years. Like, I totally understand what that feels like and what it looks like. And we're called to make disciples. But before we get there, my encouragement to you would be to plug yourself into community. This isn't like a pitch, though it is. This uh, plug yourself into community so that others would speak into you, so that others would encourage you, so that others would be in prayer for you, so that you would be in prayer for others others, so that you would speak into others, so that you would pour yourself out to others as you serve Jesus together, and then devote yourselves to good works. You can go back to make disciples. None of this says that it's going to be easy. 
Like, that's not at all what the content of this section was. But the only thing Jesus told the church to do was to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So be ready to do good work because you have perspective, because of what God has done in you, and as a result of that, devote yourself to good works. Let your motivation be grace and the glory of God. Good works are a response to the work of God in the believer. Let's pray. God, you are so incredibly gracious. You are so incredibly gracious because you have sent your son to die on a cross for sinners. And actually, we can, we can go back. You sent your son to live a life that we can't live and to die a sinner's death, to die a death that we actually deserve to die. And then he gives the grace that none of us can earn. God, that grace should immediately humble us and it should immediately set our gaze upon the work of Jesus. That, God, for the believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be at work right now, compelling us, convicting us, counseling us to change, not by our strength, but by yours. God, if there are those who don't know uh, Jesus, God, I pray that you would infuse them with your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin so that their gaze would be upon Jesus, not their work. We walked through the work of salvation and it is you who does everything. You call us to surrender. You call us to confess. You call us to repent. And everything from the washing of our sin to the regenerating of our hearts to the renewal, <clears throat> to the renewal received by your Spirit is done by your active work in us. God, there's several uh, uh, of us in here who are around a ton of people who may not know Jesus. God, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them courage, that you would give them grace, that you would remind them of what you've done, that that they can be super humble and crazy active in how they love others. And how they love others in order to demonstrate your gospel. God, I also pray that through your spirit, you would convict them, especially if they feel like they're doing this alone, that they would plug into community so that we could disciple one another, so that we could encourage one another, so that we can exhort one another for the purpose of your glory and for the purpose of making disciples. God, we thank you for this time. God, as we transition into tithes and offerings, this is, Lord, where we give you our stuff. This is, uh, man, a demonstration of transformation. This is where we give you all the glory. This is where we relinquish the control we think we have. And we worship you. We worship you by giving sacrificially, faithfully, and cheerfully. Because our ultimate object of generosity is what Christ did on the cross. And so maybe we demonstrate that in this small fashion. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.